Welcome to the IC Interviews. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today is Carlos Hardenberg, co-manager of Mobius Investment Trust. Carlos is perhaps best known as manager of Templeton Emerging Markets Investment Trust between 2015 and 2018, during which time this fund delivered outstanding performance, though his investment career goes back far longer. Carlos' current fund, Mobius Investment Trust, invests in emerging markets smaller companies selected by criteria including environmental, social and governance factors. So just by way of background, um, we have invested, as you know, Mark Mobius and myself in emerging markets for uh, a long time, for many decades. Uh, We went through all the different cycles and developments from the earlier uh, developments in emerging markets, which was mainly infrastructure developments and then the first wave of consumption, and then more and more innovation took place. And um, so we've been through all of these phases. And one of the observations that we made was that these companies very often are run by phenomenal entrepreneurs. They they really know how, how to run the business, and they are very good operators. But one of the areas that they in many cases neglect relate to governance, transparency, and other aspects which are important for other shareholders. And we have started to work on governance improvements maybe 15, 17 years ago uh, in Brazil, in Korea, in other uh, markets of this world, in, in Turkey. And we started to always review, for example, the composition of boards uh, and the quality of boards, as this is always the first starting point. If you have a proper supervisory board, which is independent, which has very clear KPIs, follows clear policies, that's always its policy. And therefore, you know, we started, we have overall, Mark and myself, we appointed over 80 board members in emerging markets over the last uh, many years. And we've seen that do, by doing that, it created a better relationship between us and other shareholders and portfolio companies. It created uh, this most valuable valuable currency of confidence and trust in these businesses. And most importantly, it led to a relative outperformance of these companies. When companies start to play by the rules, become more transparent, um, have better policies and governance rules in place, they typically start to outperform as well. And there are many ways how you can explain this. Um, that, that allows them to, you know, it also means that, for example, they have the better employee share, uh, share incentivization um, programs in place. It means that they invest in internal aspects that lead to better culture, uh, et cetera. And it, it leads to lower staff turnover. It leads to these companies incurring less, for example, regulatory fines, um, and as these companies then really become leaders, um, also in reputation, uh, it also allows them to attract better people overall. So there are many ways how you can explain why these companies are outperforming. And then uh, ESG came into the conversations a couple of years ago. It was a new terminology for something that we had actually worked on long before. Um, and... Um, you know, ESG is, I think, only telling part of the whole story. Uh, it goes much wider than this box-ticking activity, which is sometimes is seen as today. 
Um, but now there is a race towards improving ESG criteria or ESG ratings, um, as again, over the past 10 years, or actually 15 years, companies which have received a higher and improving ESG rating also outperformed the local markets and global emerging markets. So this is why we think focusing on smaller companies, which are not rated yet, which have the opportunity to receive a rating and improve their rating, are the ones which are likely to outperform going forward as well. Okay. Now, you say that um, you were a company to improve their ESG, but also their culture, which is something other fund managers don't mention. I mean, what do you mean by culture? Why is it important? And how do you help companies improve their culture? You know, the most important part of this is uh, that, uh, first of all, whenever you analyze the most successful business models, uh, in emerging markets, in most ca- in, in nine out of ten cases, uh, as you dig deeper into the team, into the story, into the um, uh, in, into these corporates, you will find that they all have one commonality, and that is that people love to work for them. They feel very engaged. They feel that the company is doing a lot for them as well, and they feel part of a family. And um, Then, in contrast, other companies in emerging markets, when you speak to the CEOs and you ask them the question you just raised, how would you describe your culture? They will say, we don't know. Well, what do you mean by that question? So um, it's, it's, it's been our job for a long time to identify those factors, which are sometimes kind of in the uh, sort of gray zones, how do you define culture? What differentiates a company with a strong corporate culture from one with a weak corporate culture? And at the end of the day, there are multiple factors, but they always start with how companies deal not just with the individual employees, but also with their families. What do they offer? What kind of uh, activities do they do so that employees really associate with the success uh, of the business? And of course, one of the there are some technical aspects that how you can manage culture and one is to not only provide uh, an incentive system which is uh, which is linked to not just performance but also to other factors not just to senior management but to all employees so for example one of the activities we are seeing lately is that companies are increasingly linking performance not just to financial targets but also also to for example social, environmental, uh, and governance-related targets. And if they are met over a certain period, employees can directly um, enjoy the benefit uh, of those, those achievements. And it is, it's about inclusion. It's about diversity. It's about uh, creating the right opportunities to also progress in a business. It's about career planning, and it's about the offering which kind of also falls outside of the business. Do they allow employees to work in a flexible fashion? Do they, do they have programs to support families and mothers with children? This may be seen as a normal thing in the UK, but certainly not in most Asian countries, Latin America or Africa. That's why we started this website, ESG plus C. Um, actually, you can check out the website. We just started this program. 
where we start to monitor, track, and report on these cultural aspects um, which describe uh, businesses in our field. So it's it's pretty wide-ranging and wide-reaching. It's pretty complex, uh, and it's not black and white. Um, and there's a very interesting, which is um, which I can share with you, uh, which is the um, it's called uh, um, it, it was actually a study done in the U.S. Um, and they ranked companies which had a higher rating in terms of their cultural perception in the in the wider space in the market, and they measured the performance of the so-called culture portfolio in the U.S. Uh, over ten years, and it outperformed significantly. So increasingly also, um, this is something which uh, investors are trying to get a handle on, like how to, how to measure this, you know, shall we only look at margin improvements and financial results, or shall we also look at other factors? Because corporate governance standards are lower in emerging and frontier markets, is it harder to work with companies to, you know, achieve this? And to what extent can you trust them to do what they say? It really depends where and in which country, and you have to pick companies very carefully. Um, I mean, to give you an example, and I think one of your questions also related to China. Of course, the situation in China in general is much more difficult than it is in other markets. In China, you have many different stock exchanges. You have all sorts of different classes of shares. You know, you have eight shares, Asia, Hong Kong listed, Chinese names, Chinese companies listed in the U.S., on Canada, so it's it's it's. Uh, then you have um, local stock exchanges where foreigners can't even invest into. So it's it's a pretty. Um, and then you know the reporting standards, the transparency in China is still in general extremely poor. So I would say engaging with companies in China um, is the most challenging activity. Uh, globally, compared to all the other emerging market uh, engagement attempts that we are that we're doing, but there, there, but there is actually there is a lot happening. So, to give you an example, we have started to demand from our portfolio companies to adopt the task force on climate-related financial disclosure recommendations, um, and we also ask from every portfolio company to integrate ESG targets into executive compensation. So these are, you know, two pretty um, significant demands that we had. Um, and we started asking for these things uh, a number of years ago. And um, uh, we are seeing that they are the first companies, the first group of companies which are doing exactly this. So the first, you see more and more announcements of, of a relatively small group of Chinese companies, but they're, they're, uh, they're, they're well-known companies and um, they're important players in the market that start to do that. They integrate ESG targets into executive compensation. Actually, what will be examples of portfolio holdings that have done this? For example, Yum, hmm. Yum China. Yeah. Um, they have done both. Um, and they are also they they were just recognized as a top employer in China as well as being they were named in the Bloomberg Gender Equality Index for the first time. Um, and uh, similarly, even in places like Vietnam, you are seeing this where companies are 
rapidly moving up that learning curve, and they're trying to address those issues. Um, also, there has been a recent activity by the um, stock exchange actually in Hong Kong, which is increasingly, they just put together like a, um, a, a task force, like a working group um, to define exactly the new requirements, ESG requirements for listed companies, also, of course, Chinese listed companies in Hong Kong. And they're getting kind of tougher and tougher on the requirements, on the reporting requirements, on the ESG transparency-related requirements, etc. So I would say relatively early days in places like China, but, the, you know, the journey has started. Is it a better situation in some other countries? Oh, yes. I mean, I tell for example, in... Uh, uh, in countries like, um, I mean, to give you one example, uh, I started doing this work in Turkey many years ago uh, where we uh, looked at ESG factors and tried to implement those in companies and tried to ask for more transparency, etc. And now I actually don't no longer have to do this because you have local investors which are becoming even more aggressive about this. So there are, there's, for example, there's initiative by the local stock exchange that um, uh, re uh, require uh, implementation of ESG-related um, uh, disclosure practice practices in Turkey. Um, in places like in Latin America, the stock exchanges are offering um, a rebate on the listing fees if companies obtain a higher rating. Um, in Latin America, we recently had a number of companies that were added to the Dow Jones um, Sustainability Index so, is this a particular Latin American country, or is it, or is it uh, mainly Brazil? Mainly Brazil. I mean, you you know, we read so much negative uh, press about Brazil right now with the M and Bolsonaro, but there are realities. You know, companies in the private sector um, are increasingly sensitive uh, to environmental issues, for example, and also to um, government-related uh, issues and social-related issues. So, gender equality equal pay, inclusion um, factors play an increasing role uh, in the private sector in Brazil. Um, so sometimes, I mean, you know, I, the, I find it highly irritating how the country is often portrayed right now by the press. Hmm. Now, there's increasing opportunities, but does including ESG and culture considerations in your investment criteria mean you have to forgo investments that you would have invested in otherwise? So, you know, in doing this in emerging markets requires a very different recipe than in developed markets like the UK or US. You cannot apply a standardized one-fits-all uh, policy to these emerging market companies. First of all, if you really want to make a difference, then you have to um, come to the table and uh, allow these companies time to develop skills, to develop know-how uh, in order to deal with these often quite uh, uh, difficult requirements. It's not easy to implement this overnight. So... We don't follow like a box. We don't follow like this inclusion or exclusion policy. We do not exclude companies which have a relatively poor rating today. We are trying to look for companies which have the right people, the right mindset, the right business model, 
um, and which may have shortcomings on the ESG side, but which have indicated the willingness to work with us to improve. That's the key. We've had a number of very, very positive uh, surprises. Only in the, you know, the fund is now almost three years old, our new fund at, uh, at Mobile Capital. But even in those three years, we've had a lot of very positive um, developments in portfolio companies that really move up this learning curve very steeply. And they look like, you know, almost lost cases on governance some years ago because the founders felt that, for example, the board should be made up of all of their friends and family, which is not necessarily, it's not that unusual. It was the same in the UK and in Germany some, you know, decades ago. Mm-hmm. But learned that you know, we learned why this is not the right way and so are they now another um, aspect of the investments approach is that you take a private equity approach to investing in public markets why is this better than taking a conventional approach and, and how you know how do you do it how do, how do you go about taking a private equity approach to public equities well that's a it's a big word in a way um, and I uh, I'd say that what we mean by this is that we try to we run a very concentrated portfolio this is a key difference between us uh, if you look at the the typical trusts in the uk they have 100, 100 120 holdings they're very close to the index uh, we have close to nothing compared to the index our active share is the highest in the industry when you have, say index do you mean msci emerging market yes yeah. yes so we have close to no overlap few mm-hmm. points most of the other funds, if you look at the 20 largest holdings, it's exactly Samsung, Baidu, Tencent, uh, et cetera, uh, Naspers. We, have, we really have put together, I would say, um, the most differentiated and unique portfolio um, to get exposure to this mid-cap segment, which is highly vibrant, which is very, very exciting which is disrupting uh, in nature, which is run by founders and families. And when you invest in these companies, often you, of course, meet standards, governance standards, transparency standards, reporting standards, which are just not world-class. They are world-class in what they do, but they are not world-class in playing by those rules which are required in the capital markets. And this is where we then, and that's now coming to your question on private equity approach, this is where we then develop a very intense relationship with the families and founders and senior management where we are um, offering uh, advice on how to optimize their profile. And uh, typically we will provide um, an extensive uh, presentation to the senior management where we summarize um, our findings, our observations, and where we are offering them solutions, how they can improve uh, their general uh, governance-related um, policies and standards, etc. And we've made so many, you know, we have the experience that we made in the markets over the last decades, and we're just offering it to them. And that's much more like what private equity, comp- private equity investors are doing. We also look at, uh, we, you know, we're really trying to see ourselves as long-term investors um, we're not flipping stocks around and we are um, seeing that this, this engagement part, um, which, which is accompanying our stock selection, can really uh, create a lot of value um, for these businesses going forward. 
So that's why we call it a private equity approach. Yeah, I mean, just jumping another question, you um, you, you um, mentioned the fact that you do have a relatively small number of holdings, um, 29 according to your March fact sheet, and 10 of these, um, the 10 largest account for over 60% of trust assets. Doesn't this create excessive risk? Because, I mean, this, uh, these holdings, they're not, say, like large liquid companies. Um, they're small companies. And they're in frontier and emerging markets. I mean, that sounds like you know, a, a concentrated portfolio of really, really risky holdings. I don't think so at all, because the risk at the end of the day, uh, this is often the misunderstanding. Uh, first of all, you can, di- you can really diversify currency risks, um, single company risks, sector risks, geographic risks with around 25 to 30 stocks. You can, you can do that technically. Um, and there are, there, there are sufficient statistical, uh, um, studies out there w- which prove that point. Um, but more importantly, um, I think it's how you define risk. We define risk through the lens of the companies that we invest in. So to give you an example, we have close to 30% invested in India. You may think, oh my God, you know, India uh, recently has been not performing really. Yeah. It's going through a difficult period. Our Indian portfolio has outperformed significantly. Um, and many of our Indian stocks are up uh, more than 30% year to date alone. They performed really well last year and they continue to perform really well this year. And why is that? Because we have invested very conservatively in uh, businesses which, number one, have very little debt. We don't like businesses which are flush with um, debt that they have to deal with times. And if you simply look at the index, the large companies in there, which you, th- which you, you know, may think are less risky, they have very, um, uh, they, they have much more vulnerable balance sheets. Number two, we have not invested in large financial uh, institutions or uh, large companies in general, which are increasingly seeing pressure from uh, the regulators, from the tax collection agencies, etc. No, we invested in smaller businesses, which are vibrant, which are innovative. We also invested in companies which have a diversified um, geographical exposure. So persistent systems, as an example, is generating revenues globally. Uh, in the U.S., in Europe, and many other places. Um, and then our focus on healthcare as well. We think that the next super cycle in emerging markets is not just education, but also healthcare services and products. Um, and we invested in one of the leading healthcare diagnostic center operator in India. So, so here's a good example. Is it risky to... Um, uh, to have few investments, very carefully selected investments in India. Um, no, it's been less risky. Similarly, in Turkey, Turkey is like the, you know, the ugly, the ugly chicken in emerging markets right now. Um, they have a currency issue. They have a political issue. They have all sorts of risks. Uh, we invested in the software business in Turkey, which is not in the index. It's not owned by. Anyone else I know uh, of our... What's the name of a company, sorry? It's called Logo. Yeah. And Logo has done really well. Logo is doing extremely well. Why? Again, they have uh, close to no debt. Uh, They are a local leader uh, in technology. Uh, They're run by the founder. 
very innovative business. They have against competition because of the difficulties in Turkey, because foreign companies haven't been very aggressive. Um, and uh, they so last year and again this year, they're, they're, you know, they continue to do really well. So this is this this is how we manage risk, whether it's in Turkey, whether it's in China, whether it's in Brazil. You have to um, define what you mean by risk uh, in your stock selection. Okay. Now, you, you mentioned that you like companies um, that are resilient, that don't have much debt, and you like innovative business models. A bit more about, you know, what um, you know, what you look for in terms of a company that's resilient and has an innovative business model, and you know, perhaps some, uh, a few examples. Uh, yes, uh, let me give you one example, um, and let's turn to Taiwan because, to me, hmm. uh, I think some, sometimes sometimes I have I have this uh, idea to recall the trust uh, Asian Opportunity Trust or something because. The more work you do, the more time in emerging markets, the more you realize the biggest opportunities are in Asia. Um, and in Asia, I wouldn't necessarily just say China. China is, of course, uh, uh, filled with opportunities, but also Taiwan and Korea. And I'm not talking about Samsung, and I'm not talking about TSMC, which everybody knows and owns. I'm talking about the mid-cap segment companies which are highly innovative, that are registering patents every week, that are attracting uh, phenomenal engineers and scientists. And one example is e-memory. E-memory technology is a business that um, caught our eye because they, um, year after year after year, it's a small, when we started investing, it was just a few hundred million market cap. The year after year, they've been winning um, awards from TSMC, you're, you're aware of TSMC, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so the, lar the, the largest foundry. Um, they won year after year awards from TSMC as one of, the, one of their um, preferred suppliers of so-called IC design. Um, and what eMemory focuses on, this is a bunch of um, highly talented um, engineers and scientists that constantly... Um, come up with new design ideas that um, part, part one part of this design solutions and software programs that they offer ensure that chips produced by TSMC have a unique fingerprint, they call it, um, and are no longer uh, vulnerable to external intrusion. So they are they are you know they they're safe against external hackers. And they, are, uh, they have this special encryption technology which saves you from being exposed to external intrusion. For example, your laptops, uh, your, your, your smartphone, handheld devices, data centers, you name it. Um, and they've been really successful in um, developing this. It's a small company. You would think that only big companies can do this. It's a small company that is a global leader in this technology. They're also a global leader in a um, technology called embedded non-volatile memory. Embedded non-volatile memory. And that is securing performance, again, of logic chips um, when uh, power supply isn't stable, which is a big, uh, which is a, a big subject for especially things like Internet of Things and 
um, as the semiconductor content is spreading out globally into automobiles, et cetera. This is very important to um, ensure there's high performance. So we started to dig up this, uh, learn more about the company. We had multiple calls with them. They had, didn't have very good communication. They didn't have very good um, investor relations materials. Uh, this was one of the areas which we engaged um, in with them. Uh, and they quickly moved up the learning curve and really have produced now world-class materials, better transparency. Uh, we also introduced them to sell-side analysts so they can start covering them. So this is one example. I mean, I can I can give you many examples. There's a there's a company called Parade, uh, which is um, again an IC design. Uh, they are focusing on the um, signal improvement between uh, the GPU and the screens, which is increasingly uh, a difficult subject because the data is getting in more intense and more intense as we speak. Um, and the screens are getting uh, more sophisticated uh, and they have to deal with a lot more volume and data and complexity. Uh, and again, they're a global leader um, in providing solutions. Yeah, you mentioned that um, you know, you're finding a lot of opportunities in Asia. I mean, do you consider the geography of a company at all when you're seeking stocks or do you, you know, purely seek them you know, from a bottom-up basis on the basis of a company's merits? Whether geography plays a role for us, yes, definitely. I mean, we we always prefer to invest in companies that that are based in countries typically which provide the right environment for them to flourish. So we stayed away from Argentina. We have not invested in many African countries simply because we think it's it's easy to get carried away, but at the end of the day, very tough operating environments. Um, and, uh, and therefore, the geography it plays a role for us. Macroeconomic factors play a role. The openness of countries play a role. The regulatory environment plays a role, uh, etc. So, yes. Mm-hmm. Big exception where we have just simply weighed the kind of the risks against the opportunities of the individual company. And it's one, one, it's, it's been helping us a great deal was the right decision. Uh, sometimes companies can do really well, even if the macro environment is is tough. But in general, we prefer like countries uh, in Asia where you have very strong macro uh, conditions as well. Okay, I, I mean, out of interest, I mean, you, you've described in quite, in quite a lot of detail your investment approach. How is it different to the investment approach uh, you took when you were working at Franklin Templeton, which is obviously you know a large global asset manager? You guys are a small boutique. You know what's what are the obviously different? We are far more specialized now. Um, do not uh, run zillions of portfolios for zillions. We don't try to offer everything to everyone. We have one strategy, which makes a big difference. It may sound like, I mean, I wouldn't under, I would like, I think this needs to be stressed uh, a big way because there's, there's just this one focus on one strategy and this, we want this to work. Uh, so that's number one. Number two, we work a lot more with external experts. I don't believe that you can always have the best people internally. It's, it's a nice marketing story, but it doesn't exist. If you be, uh, really good in understanding uh, 
um, a special subsector in China or Brazil or Turkey or South Africa. There are local universities, there are think tanks, uh, there are local scientists and engineers you want to work with. You, you don't want the you know, internal guy who knows everything. Um, so that's that's a second difference. Um, and also the um, degree of concentration, most of the large funds, and that was an increasing irritation for us, become more and more like the index themselves. Um, and they and these companies even don't allow you to move away from the index. Mm. And we said, stop this. We want to invest in companies. We are not interested if a company is in the index or not. We want to focus on this most vibrant uh, mid-cap segment only. Um, and we think we, you know, that's how Mark started and I started. Back in, when I joined Mark in 99, hmm. discussed the index. We had a very high active share and a pretty concentrated fund. And we uh, delivered really good results. Um, and that's what we really wanted to come back to. Okay. Now, um, you mentioned that um, you've, you know, you, you, your Indian holdings have actually held up really well last year and this year, despite the situation. Obviously, the situation's got a lot worse in the past month. What are the prospects of these holdings going forward? And, you know, would you reconsider any of it in view of, you know, this unprecedented and serious situation that's, you know, happening now in, in, in India? No, we have invested in, so we have Apollo tubes, um, systems, um, Metropolis Healthcare. Um, and uh, so we, we, you know, all of these companies we've invested because we think they will do very well over the next decade. Mm. Top. And they are um, blessed with fantastic management teams. They are the best in what they do. They have very strong modes around their business. They are superior in terms of profitability. They may run into more trouble this year. This may get much worse. I don't think so, but it may get much worse. Who, who am I to know this? But these businesses will come out as leaders and they will win um, relatively because they will utilize this period of weakness to solidify their own business model. They can do this because they have plenty of cash available, which others don't. So they can either even acquire competitors which run into bigger trouble, um, and they can endure the, endure these times by also having a fairly diversified business model. So uh, very clearly, no, I'm very happy about our positioning. Yeah. Um, what, what do you say are you know, um, the big risks to, you know, the areas you invest in at the moment? I think the biggest risk is always that um, there is some unforeseen uh, governance-related uh, problem, like a wire card moment. Mm. Uh, that is something which we can, which we're trying to control as much as possible by trying to choose trustworthy people. But you never know; there can always be something wrong, um, and they can always, uh, you know, they can always be. But we're trying to really scrutinize on the numbers, et cetera. But there's never a guarantee. I mean, I experienced this often enough. Apart from this, 
Um, I think obviously, you know, there is a increasing tension in Asia between China and its neighbors, um, which we are watching very carefully. There's an increasing tension there. And I think the situation in Hong Kong is not a good one. Uh, the situation uh, between China and uh, Taiwan needs to be watched. Uh, it was the same a few years ago, but it is certainly uh, intensifying. The language is intensifying. The threat is is not uh, getting smaller. So that that's that's another one. I do not think there's going to be some totally unforeseen, sudden, gigantic move by the Chinese. That's not their handwriting. They will do this very slowly and gradually over decades. Hmm. It's a risk. Um, and yeah, and then I also have to say, I mean, obviously, um, the risk of a new mutant, as we discussed at the beginning of the call, yeah. that's, not, that's not specific to emerging markets. Hmm. Lastly, I think in Africa, I mean, the disappointment, I th- I'm optimistic about Africa long term, but I think that um, they, they are missing still a lot of opportunities by still having too much discipline, too little discipline with regards to creating more reliable institutions. And we have invested in Kenya, uh, in Safaricom, which is doing really well, but there should be more of these opportunities. And uh, one great example is Nigeria. It should be a very wealthy country, but it's not happening. Um, and there's just too much um, or too little investment into the right uh, uh, in, into the right areas in the economy, and, and there's still the lack of political stability there, which is pestering the country. Okay. Um, on the note of um, risk, you don't currently have any um, gearing um, that is debt. Um, is, why is that? Is it because you're concerned about risk, or is that just general policy? No, we can do that. Um, I mean, the last year was not an easy year to negotiate this into structure. Um, and uh, our focus now, our focus has been, number one, to ensure that we deliver outstanding returns and that our investors uh, can kind of see this proof of concept, that it works, that it's differentiated, that we can beat the competition, that we're offering a unique angle to this part of emerging markets. Um, and we needed to focus on the three-year mark, which we are getting to now. We're celebrating our third year. We had a f- phenomenal year last year. We had a very good first quarter. I think we have a good chance to end this year well. Uh, then to kind of consolidate the trust, to raise more money, to make the trust more meaningful. Look, we are subscale. We're too small. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and to we have issued shares in the past. We are seeing a good momentum right now. Um, there's an increasing number of buy recommendations, uh, investors that are knocking on the door to come in. And once we can uh, bring this to a higher flying altitude, we would also uh, consider leverage. Okay. What contributed to the um, strong performance um, relative to the indices over the past year? Well, last year and also into this year, it's really stock selection. Um, and it's been India. India has been one of the driving forces behind performance. Uh, we invested in companies which were really underowned, not discovered well, not understood well. Uh, and it turned out to be really good to focus on that smaller segment. They are now being increasingly recognized um, and their strengths are becoming very visible. But also Taiwan. 
uh, with eMemory, which has done really well. But even our stock selection in China with Yum, Yum, which just reported another set of solid results. Um, so it's really been stock selection. Okay. Um, and um, I mean, do you expect to continue to outperform in the next year? Um, out of interest, what kind of conditions might Mobius Investment Trust underperform broad emerging and frontier markets? We would underperform relatively if there is this single directional trade into the mega caps. Hmm. There's going to be a global second wave of a flood of money into Alibaba, Baidu, Tencent, Samsung, SK Hynix, and the rest of it. Um, then the flows would lead to relative outperformance of the uh, mega cap market. But this would be a short-lived phenomena. We think that there's this, the catch-up play that we are investing into is a five, seven, ten-year story. Don't don't forget that you know LG, um, Samsung, uh, Naspers, they used to be small companies only mm -hmm. 10, 15 years ago. Um, so we are trying to we're trying to identify the next group of companies which is uh, going to double, triple, quadruple in size. Um, I think that. I mean, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know how, whether, you know, what will happen in the next six months. I think, I think over the long term, this kind of strategy should, should, um, generate significant outperformance just because these companies have the ability to multiply in size. Um, a, you know, for a Samsung to double takes a little bit more, um, or for a 10 cent to double. I think the large companies will increasingly have difficulties especially also with regards to regulation. And yeah, I mean, see what happened with Alibaba recently. Now there's talk that Tencent will get a fine, et cetera. This is just the beginning of that story. Okay. And um, just finally, I mean, what changes have you recently made to the portfolio and, and what, what are the reasons for this? Um, not too many. Uh, we invested uh, in a new company called Elite Material which is a global leader in so-called copper-clad laminates, which is used for printed circuit boards. And we think that uh, that's an incredible long-term opportunity as semiconductor. The semiconductor spread is the, like the gold of tomorrow. Um, and uh, they are a leader, profitability leader, they are technology leader. Um, and these printed circuit boards need more and more sophisticated and high-quality copper-clad laminates and they are a leading provider of that. So um, the, uh, we were quite excited about this opportunity. We also invested in Sinbin, which is a leader in elect uh, electric parts for the wind energy uh, industry in Asia. They have a 60% market share in Asia. And we think that the US and Europe will increasingly move into alternative energy. Um, and they are one of the prime suppliers of solutions for especially wind windmills uh, but they also have a flourishing e-bike business we also like um, so those are the ones uh, we recently added um, and uh, yeah. Yeah. have you sold anything recently uh, yes we sold one company in korea uh, which is called hugel uh, and uh, they are in the pharmaceutical business there was increasing concern about the this, this sector in general, because they are exporting to China, 
and the Chinese um, will make or are, are making it more and more difficult for Korean businesses to uh, import into China because the Chinese want to produce everything themselves. Uh, and one of their competitors actually went into serious trouble because they were accused of illegally exporting to China. And we felt more and more uncomfortable about the space and uh, decided to take take profits and, and sell. Okay. Now, that's all my questions. Are there any points that um, I've missed off that you'd like to add? Uh, no, I think we covered uh, everything. Um, I hope I uh, was able to uh, bring this portfolio to life and, and the story yeah. to life. I think it's, it is, I think in summary, one more time, it's a highly differentiated story. I'm hugely optimistic about the opportunities because we're not, you know, when the stocks, uh, we, we are not competing with the Black Rocks, Fidelities, uh, et cetera, of this world. Um, we are more competing with local buyers, which is, which is quite interesting. Uh, and it's true active investing. Working with these companies is just is fun and and uh, and very uh, full. It it brings brings us a lot of uh, fulfillment. Okay, thank you, Carlos. A really interesting insight into how it's possible to apply an ESG investment approach to emerging markets and helpful update on Mobius Investment Trust. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.